over 80% of women suffer with sleep disturbances during the perimenopause period. And what we also saw was that over 60% were suffering with anxiety and mood disorders. So we're talking about more than the majority, like more than the majority of women suffer with these debilitating symptoms. And regardless of HRT use, regardless of what your initial BMI is, if you have more plants in your diet, you significantly reduce by, in some cases, up to a third, the likelihood of suffering with these worst symptoms of the menopause. Well, that's Dr. Federica Amati, a postdoctoral medical scientist and accredited nutritionist who feels that food really needs to be central to conversations about menopause. Welcome to the Lizelle Wellbeing Show. I'm Lizelle and this is the podcast that brings you weekly wellness wisdom you can trust. Now, I don't know about you, but my relationship with food has certainly changed since perimenopause and menopause. You know, I've noticed a change in how my body responds to certain foods. Certainly before I was on HRT, I used to get cravings for high processed foods, for biscuits, for cakes, for sweet things. And I guess through my research now and work of being much more aware of not only my menopausal health and hormone health and gut health, it has really made me highly attuned to what I eat and how my body responds to it. Well, groundbreaking new research from the Zoe Predict study, which is the largest human nutrition study of its kind, has shown surprising effects of the menopause on our daily metabolism. Now, the results show that a powerful shift occurs in a woman's metabolism and microbiome composition, which will affect our gut health, the nutritional status of us both during and after menopause. It's fascinating stuff. You will so want to hear this. The compelling research has come from the personalized nutrition company Zoe and scientists at the King's College in London. And it's shown the protective impact that a quality diet can have on issues from hot flushes to brain fog, weight gain and more. Well, Dr. Federica Amati is clear that a varied plant-based diet could be absolutely life-changing for many of us. Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAS10. That's S-O-L. L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Federica, warm welcome to the show. I know that we've seen each other before over on my Instagram lives and I'm so looking forward to having this deep dive and a chance to chat for a little bit longer. Yes, thank you, Liz. I'm so happy to be here. I was so glad to receive the invitation to join you one-on-one 
on your podcast. So thanks for having me. Great pleasure. So I think let's let's start at stage one, shall we, so that we all know that we're on the same page here about exactly what we're talking about. Can you explain to us what the metabolism actually is? Because we hear this word, oh, my metabolism, my metabolism must be fast, slow, reset, whatever. What exactly are we talking about? It's a really good question. So when we're talking about metabolism, we're really talking about how our body breaks down, absorbs and uses different nutrients and energy from food. And often people will use that word just to describe how quickly they think they can burn through the food that they're eating. But in reality, when we're looking at it from a biological research point of view, we're trying to understand how our body breaks down, absorbs and effectively uses the different components in our food for different metabolic um, uses different metabolic processes. And is this something then like a dial on uh, a machine? Can we dial it up or dial it down? Yeah, that would be nice. It's not so much of a dial as something that's important to understand. So it's a little bit like knowing what engine you have in your car and therefore knowing what's the best fuel for it. So, you know, an engine on a fast race car is going to be different to an engine on a little moped. And our metabolism is something that changes throughout our lives. So it's very different in childhood. It then changes again quite drastically if we're pregnant. And then it changes again with the menopause and changes again as we get older. So it really changes throughout the life course. And it's about knowing at what stage we're at and what sort of fuel we need to give our metabolism to function at its best and to make sure that we get the most out of the food Mm. we eat. If our metabolism is not functioning at its best, is this something that leads to a lot of weight gain, for example, or health issues? Yes. So really, when you think about metabolic disease, those groups of diseases, which include obesity, type 2 diabetes, um, some consider Alzheimer's to be a metabolic disease as well. They all relate to diseases where our metabolism is not in sync and it's not effectively protecting us from the negative effects of having, for example, too high a blood glucose level. So yeah, metabolic disease is really, really a big problem in our society. Uh, Most of the deaths and disabilities in countries like the UK are attributable to cardiovascular and metabolic disease. So it's something that we should all be aware of and something that we should all work towards enhancing and improving for Mm. later. And I've read studies also in relation to COVID that those who are very badly affected or deaths even linked to metabolic disease as being a key underlying factor in that as well. Yes, absolutely. So we know that people who suffer with metabolic diseases have a higher likelihood of bad outcomes from COVID. Mm. So we saw right at the beginning of the pandemic one of the biggest risk factors for death and for severe illness was obesity. Yes. And that is sort of a biggest and most well-known metabolic disease. Um, So we know that it really impacts the likelihood of what outcome you're going to have with COVID, but with other infections as well. Mm. So it's similar with flu and it's similar with other infectious diseases. So overall then, really important to assess our metabolic health to make sure that we're running at optimum, to use that car analogy, And I know it's very interesting that the Zoe Predict study has found that menopause, which is obviously a key topic for us here at Lizelle Wellbeing, is a time of major metabolic upheaval and that it can have a significant impact on our long-term health. So can you perhaps talk through the study and what it was hoping to explore here? 
basically this big study, it's the biggest study of its kind. As you know, Liz, there's been not enough research done on the menopause and the, its impact on women's health. We do know that women postmenopausally are at higher risk of cardiometabolic diseases. So after the menopause, women are much more likely to suffer with cardiovascular disease, obesity, dementia, and type 2 diabetes. And what this study really tried to do is say, okay, we have a big cohort, a big group of women, and we also have men in this cohort in Predict 1. And basically what the scientists did, they took women who were premenopausal, perimenopausal, and postmenopausal, and then age matched them. And this is really important because by having women at all three stages of the same age, the scientists were able to see what impacts were due to just the menopause, so just the estrogen reduction as opposed to age. Because sometimes, you know, you'll hear, oh, it's just part of getting older, it's just aging process. Mm. So what the scientists were really trying to do with this study was separate what's attributable to age and what's actually completely attributable to the menopause. And so they looked at several metabolic outcomes, including blood glucose response with the continuous glucose monitor. And they also looked at postprandial, so after meal responses to specific meals designed for this intervention, for this trial. Mm -hmm. And what they found was that postmenopausal women had clinically significant worse glucose metabolism after that meal that was designed to see how the, the body reacted. Wow. And they also had higher markers of inflammation. So those two things combined are obviously really impactful for metabolic health. And then what they also did is they looked at the overall CGM reading, so the continuous glucose monitors over the 24 hours, and they saw that postmenopausal women generally had worse glucose response. So even excluding that specific postprandial after that meal, they just generally had worse blood glucose compared with premenopausal women. You know, this is the first study of its kind to have such an in-depth and extensive analysis of the impact which menopause specifically has mm. on metabolic health. And they also accounted for initial BMI and also accounted for use of HRT. So we know that really this is these changes in metabolism are actually due to the fallen estrogen mm -hmm. that we see in menopause. So it's very exciting as a as a finding. And what's been really great to see is that a second part, sort of a second step in the study, which is not yet published, but we're getting there, is to look at how different diets can help with this. So now we know this, now we know that there's a real difference in these women's metabolisms after the menopause. And we also know from the same study that microbiome, the gut microbiome is different in mm. postmenopausal women compared to pre, which is really surprising. And actually, we didn't expect it to be so different, <laughs> but it's markedly different in that postmenopausal women have more obesogenic bacteria and they have more pro-inflammatory bacteria compared to premenopausal women. That is really fascinating and highly relevant for every midlife woman and beyond listening to this. We've known for a long time that lowering levels of oestrogen, particularly from sort of our mid-40s onwards, or it could be earlier in some cases, has a dramatic impact, deleterious impact on our overall health. 
But as you say, nobody has looked at this connection with the metabolism and why weight gain, for example, is just so common. You know, that middle age spread, the muffin top around the middle. It's a real thing. And you're saying now that your findings show that the lowering of estrogen is literally impacting what's happening in the gut, which is potentially in turn then controlling our metabolism. Is that right? Yes, exactly right. So not only is it impacting how we are able to control our blood glucose, which is so important, as we know, for maintaining good body weight, but also maintaining energy levels and for decreasing inflammation. So high blood glucose levels increase the rate of aging and inflammation. So we know that. And as you said, Liz, we also know that the microbiome is changed. So where the microbiome is helpful, the gut microbiome is helpful for us pre-menopause in reducing the impact of inflammation and in helping to maintain weight. Post-menopausally, we see a change in the microbes that are living in the gut of these women. And so we've seen that the microbes found in postmenopausal women are actually making the inflammation and the weight gain sort of worse. And to add to that, as you said, the middle-aged spread in, in the midriff, that's also linked with Fat helps to regulate estrogen. So our, our fat cells actually create a little bit of estrogen. So what our body does as our estrogen levels start to fall dramatically in, during the perimenopause is it tries to amp up the production of estrogen from our fat cells. Mm -hmm. And that can very often result in this muffin top that yes. we see. It's our body is trying to help us regulate by increasing estrogen. Wow. Um, so that combined <laughs> with this worsened yeah. blood glucose metabolism means that we're storing more fat from our blood glucose, but we're also trying to create more fat to create estrogen for ourselves. And so, yeah, it's, it's, yes. it's not just age and it's not just women eating different foods. Although we have seen in the same study, we've seen that women who are postmenopausal do tend to choose higher sugar foods, which is interesting. So there is a dietary change as well but it's metabolic. But maybe their bodies are asking them to choose higher sugar foods because the body knows that that's what will lay down more fat cells and it knows that that's where it's going to get its estrogen from. So you've, you've got this kind of internal battle that if you are low in estrogen, your body's going to make more fat cells, so you make more estrogen. Right, and, and actually we also know that if you have poor blood glucose metabolism, poor blood glucose control what happens is you feel hungrier. So we talk, as Zoe, we talk about a lot about these um, glucose roller coasters. And it's this idea that when you have high blood glucose, you have these peaks after you eat starchy foods or sugary foods. And then your insulin works really hard to try and bring that peak back down. And sometimes that's very rapid and you go into what, you almost go into hypoglycemia. So you almost go below your normal point. And at that point where you're really low in your blood glucose, you feel ravenous because you don't have enough glucose circulating in your blood. And so what happens is you you seek out high sugar foods to try and bring that back to, to normal. But of course, it's like a vicious cycle because then your blood glucose response is poor again. So you spike again yes. and you have these what we call roller coasters of high blood glucose, low blood glucose, high blood glucose, low blood glucose. And very closely linked to that are cravings and hunger pangs every sort of 90 minutes or so, which in my clinic, I hear quite a lot of women going through the menopause, perimenopause or postmenopausally say to me, I just feel like I crave sugar and I'm hungry all the time. And that's very closely linked with 
poor blood glucose metabolism. That's so fascinating because I've been looking at research on the slightly other side of this, which is showing that replacing estrogen using HRT can help with the outcomes and prevention of type 2 diabetes. And I think what you're saying is this is the the mechanism by which this is working. So we know, for example, that women who replace their estrogen are far less likely to develop type 2 diabetes. But I've not seen a drill down into that data that says why. And this could be unlocking that very key, couldn't it, as to why this happens. It's fascinating stuff. It's really interesting. And basically what we do know is that estrogen is very protective for women throughout our lives. So it helps regulate our glucose metabolism. It also helps us with our fat metabolism. So reducing the amount of circulating, you know, sticky, very low density lipoproteins in our blood. And it also impacts our gut microbiome composition. So there's a nice term that's used sometimes, the estrabolome, which are these bacteria in the gut that are sensitive to estrogen. And they're involved with estrogen metabolism. And basically they create the enzymes necessary to help us cleave estrogen from binding sites and putting it back into circulation. So there's a whole group of microbes in our gut that are sensitive to estrogen. And when that estrogen level dramatically falls, they don't have the estrogen they need to like basically continue thriving. Um, So there's quite a few mechanisms that are implicated in what happens when when we have loss of estrogen. And you're completely right, Liz, HRT, whilst not every single woman might want to take HRT and not every woman can, it actually does exactly that. It protects women from these adverse effects of the menopause and reduces the risk that we see uh, for most menopausal women. So it's really a powerful tool that now I think more women are happy to, to take. And it's really good that the message thanks to people like you, is getting out there that it's safe to take and that we should be asking our doctors for that prescription if we need it. And, you know, even if it's not systemic HRT, if if you're taking localized HRT or even just the cream for uh, local vaginal symptoms, it, it can make the world of difference to women. Oh, you're, you're talking to the converted. And, <laughs> do you know, I absolutely love you, Feddy. And the reason that I love this conversation and it's taken a slightly unexpected turn because I wasn't quite thinking that this is exactly the, the, the findings that we would be discussing here, is that you have linked, you've managed for the first time ever to link, I think, absolutely categorically two of my all-time favourite subjects that I have written about. My my penultimate book was uh, The Good Gut Guide and the last one was The Good Menopause Guide and you have seamlessly <laughs> integrated the two together and showed this intrinsic link between the gut microbiome, I love the fact that there are gut microbes that are estrogen sensitive that become even more important to be aware of during this time of perimenopause and menopause and presumably postmenopause. Presumably it's never too late to be aware of this either. A hundred percent. So what we do know is that if we can support these estrabolomes, so this these specific microbes, um, from really we should be thinking about this for most of us, as you said, Liz, most women will go through the perimenopause in their 40s. Um, although, you know, 1% of women will go into menopause before their 40s. So it's important to think about those and, and surgical menopause as well. But really, if majority of us started thinking about this in our mid-30s and really working to support our microbiome and our gut health to keep the estrabolome healthy and maintain you know, optimal levels of estrogen for our biology and help to just 
keep everything working as well as possible in the microbiome for estrogen. But as you said, later in life, like the microbiome is what protects us from inflammation. It protects us from other, like the metabolic diseases we've just spoken about. Mm. Microbiome has a huge part to play in helping to regulate blood glucose levels and our glucose response. So we know that there are specific microbes which help to regulate glucose metabolism. And women tend to have more of these before the menopause than they do after. But of course, as well as being some of these being estrogen sensitive, a lot of the other strains that are anti-inflammatory and that are good for metabolic health are microbes that we can help nourish through our diet. So what's really exciting about the second part of this research is looking at dietary patterns in women and how those dietary patterns impact symptoms and long-term health outcomes. So we have this sort of short-term gain of improving our symptoms and of making that transition easier, but we have the long-term gains of reducing the risks that women have of diseases like Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, like postmenopausally, our risk of these diseases rises so much. It's quite scary. As women, we're much more likely to have Alzheimer's than our fellow men. And so we need to, I think that we need to start thinking about this a lot sooner and then continue supporting our health throughout our lives with the aim of outliving, you know, outliving our expectations and living a long and healthy life free of disability and free of ill health as long as possible. Amen. Well, okay, so we've learned a little bit here about the effect the menopause can have on our metabolism, our microbiome. We're going to touch on the pro-inflammatory and the obesogenic bacteria species and what we can do. And I think after the break, what we should talk about, Fedi, is what lifestyle changes we can now be making to keep us all as happy and as healthy as possible. So let's dig into that and uh, don't go away. everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beja Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O-L D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldajanero.com and use the code ACAS10 for 10% off. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
So, Fadi, welcome back. And am I right that you feel now that by incorporating these new scientific learnings on menopause into the diet, as women, we may be partially able to reduce the unfavourable health impacts of menopause overall, you know, by reducing inflammation, our, our blood sugar spikes, or by indirectly altering the microbiome? I mean, that does feel like a huge but brilliant claim. Yes, no, but you've nailed it in literally, I couldn't have written it better myself. (laughs) So yes, the exciting part of this research is that apart from understanding these metabolic changes and these microbiome changes, we also now know that a diet that is rich in plant diversity significantly reduces the likelihood of suffering with the worst symptoms. So as we were saying earlier before the break, not only can we try and make these symptoms you know, more tolerable. I was really shocked to see in the results from the study that over 80% of women suffer with sleep disturbances during the perimenopause period. That is huge. That's eight out of 10 women, more than that. Uh, And what we also saw was that over 60% were suffering with anxiety and mood disorders. So we're talking about more than the majority, like more than the majority of women suffer with these debilitating symptoms. And what we saw in the data with the what's called the healthy plant dietary index. So it's a way of measuring how many healthy plants are people eating in their diet. So it doesn't matter if you're vegetarian or if you eat fish or meat or it does it's not about a dietary trend. It's more about how many plants are you actually eating every day in their whole form. So not in ultra processed foods. And this measure clearly showed that regardless of HRT use, regardless of what your initial BMI is, because being overweight or having obesity puts you at higher risk of a lot of the symptoms of the menopause. So regardless of that, if you have more plants in your diet, you significantly reduce by some in, in some cases up to a third, the likelihood of suffering with these worst symptoms of the menopause. So I think this is really empowering information where even if you're somebody who's maybe come to being interested in gut health and diet later in life, perhaps you're already perimenopausal or you're, you've already gone through the menopause, finding out that you can significantly reduce some of the symptoms that really impact women in this time by increasing how many plants you have in your diet. You know, it's a, it's a sort of a simple way of trying to reduce your risk of some of these really, really serious symptoms. And in the long term, as you said, these same changes, so a diet rich in plant foods with lots of diversity in plants, we know in the long term is associated with a much reduced risk of cardiovascular disease, a much reduced risk of Alzheimer's and a much reduced risk of type 2 diabetes. So it's changes that we want to implement to our diet for reducing the symptoms we're suffering right now as we're going through them. If we keep these changes up in the long term, they will also keep us healthier as postmenopausal women and reduce our risks later in life because they'll attenuate some of this sort of damage that the metabolic change can have on women's health. 
When we talk about fibre-rich whole plants and, and eating them as often as possible and incorporating them into the body, are there specific things that our little gut bugs really love? I've heard talk of things containing inulin, lots of resistant starch and the fibrous vegetables like asparagus and artichokes and chicory and, you know, the kind of the hard-to-chew things. Are, are those the things that we should be really feeding our gut microbes with? Yeah, so there's... Plenty of evidence around specific types of fiber being particularly prebiotic. So, you know, being particularly loved by our gut microbes. This includes things, you know, as I said, inulin, Jerusalem, artichokes um, are a really good example of this. But I think we've moved on from that a little bit. Um, So in the research around the microbiome, what we know now is that we need as many different types of fiber as possible. It's not actually just about going for the popular guys. (laughs) They're very good to have. Right. But what the American and British gut project have shown us is that having different types, um, the ideal number being 30 different types of plant fiber a week is linked to optimal health outcomes. And that might sound like a lot, but actually 30 different types of plants includes mushrooms, beans, lentils. It includes herbs and spices, nuts and seeds, vegetables and fruit. So there's a lot to choose from. Yes. You know, sometimes it helps to actually write it down have a little list on your fridge and add every plant that you use and you'll get it's quite fun and it's a nice way to mix things up think about what's seasonal and having that variety of fiber in your diet is what then supports having a variety of microbes able to thrive in your gut because each microbe in our gut has a different role and what we want to do is nurture the ones that produce the most beneficial chemicals for us called postbiotics These are things like short-chain fatty acids. Butyrate is famous for this. Uh, Serotonin, so neurotransmitters. Making sure that we have a variety of fibers from plants, we make sure that we support the variety of bugs that produce different helpful postbiotics. Because the issue is that if we don't eat that variety of fiber, but we eat other foods, so say, for instance, some women enjoy eating, I don't know, say biscuits or meat, Different foods will also feed different microbes that are not that helpful. So I guess the big trend here is that the microbes that are good for us in the sense that they produce helpful postbiotics that are anti-inflammatory and that help us with their metabolism, they thrive on different types of plant fiber. The microbes that actually create postbiotics that can be pro-inflammatory are thriving on different foods. They're not thriving on the plant fibers. Am I right in saying that high sugar foods are in essence feeding the bad bugs that are damaging to our microbiome and in turn our overall well-being? So it's interesting because high sugar foods, yes, but it's the fact that they're very often ultra processed and have artificial sweeteners and emulsifiers that actually reach our gut bacteria. So sugar itself is absorbed higher up in the gut. Um, so it's it's problematic for other reasons. But the problem with high sugar foods and HFSS foods, so high fat sugar and sodium foods, salt foods, is that they have added chemicals in them, which for a long time we thought were inert with, you know, Everyone thought, oh, it's okay. They don't get absorbed into the bloodstream higher up in the gut, so they'll be fine. But actually what we're discovering now is that these sweeteners, these emulsifiers, they get to our gut bacteria and they disrupt their function. Mm. So we now know that emulsifiers actually really disrupt the microbiome and how it functions. And some sweeteners 
amazing study that came out last month, which was a, that made a lot of noise on social media, um, showed that some of the artificial sweeteners that we use in lots of foods can actually cause our gut microbes to produce a blood glucose response, even though they're supposed to be re- replacing sugar. Really? Which ones are we talking about specifically here? So sucralose and saccharin have, have been shown to have this blood glucose response, uh, which we really w- weren't expecting. But what's interesting, what's really important about uh, artificial sweeteners is that each one is very different. So we, we shouldn't really group them together in one group because some of them are genuinely bad. Like they, there's no benefit, in my opinion and, and in others' opinion, to, mm. to have them instead of sugar. But some of them we think might have a place. So um, stevia is one that actually seems to, yes, reach the gut microbes, but it, stevia is a plant itself. And actually, it doesn't seem to have a harmful effect on the gut microbes. Mm. Xylitol is well known for being actually quite good for our oral microbiome. So lumping sort of artificial and non-sugar sweeteners all together in the same group is actually quite counterintuitive. But what we do know is that most emulsifiers are not beneficial for our gut microbiome. Right. So we need to be a bit mindful about these ultra processed foods that are often high in sugar or in sweetener. And they have lots of added chemicals, which will disrupt our microbiome or will at least interact with it. And we're not that we're not there yet with the research to know exactly what everything does. So it's better to aim for foods that are as unprocessed as possible, where, of course, though, tinned beans, frozen berries, those are all absolutely fine. I'm talking about foods that don't look anything like what they're supposed to look like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I always give Got the you. example of when you go from a corn on the cob to Doritos, you know? Right. Very different to look at. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> When you talk about emulsifiers, and this is a word that we see on on labels and, you know, my audience will know that I'm forensic about reading a label on anything, frankly, whether it's a, you know, beauty product or or something I'm picking up in the supermarket. You often see that word emulsifier. What is an emulsifier? How can we identify it? And are they all bad? Should we be saying that anything with the word emulsifier on a packet should have like a little hazard sign around it? That's a really good question. Um, Different emulsifiers do seem to have different effects. So again, we can't group them all together, but I think some groups are starting to emerge. So emulsifiers are used, again, mostly in ultra-processed foods to give it, to give foods that creamy texture in the mouth. So they give like a a creamy mouthfeel without using fresh cream. And that, of course, gives the products a longer shelf life. So that's why they're used. Um, you'll find them very often in ice creams, yogurts, but also cakes and confectionery, such as muffins and fairy cakes and things like that. So they should be stated as emulsifiers on the back of the packet. And they vary from things like xanthan gum, guar gum. They often have gum in the name, but there's lots of others that, that I mean, uh, some of them I can't even pronounce if I'm honest with you. Yes. Yeah. Um, but they will be on the back of the pack. My general sort of rule with it for myself and also for my clients to make sure that we're not getting too anxious about everything is to say that if there's a product that has to have three, four, five emulsifiers, I would probably not go there. Mm -hmm. Um, Some things have emulsifiers in them and it's hard to avoid. So a lot of plant milks will have one emulsifier, if not more. In those cases, it's about which are they using and try and go for the one that has 
only one emulsifier if possible (laughs) or none if you can find it so again Liz it's a really good question it's something that we need to keep on top of the science Mm -hmm. to see what we find as more studies are done which they they are being done right now which ones are okay for health which ones might actually be beneficial for our gut microbes because some of them are fibrous in their sort of um, activity and which ones are actually best avoided and we should steer clear of them because they really disrupt our microbiome. Mm. You may have potentially answered a question that I was asked by somebody recently and it's on my to-do list for research. I was asked by somebody who'd seen quite a lot of negative press around guar gum and was asking me whether I thought it was a good thing or not, and if not, why not? Would that have come from this research that it could be a microbiome disruptor? Yeah, so guar gum is one of the ones that's been looked at closely because it's used a lot. Uh, And I think I actually saw a study yesterday that was basically reporting that guar gum itself might not be as, as bad as some of the others. So I have to go back there's a I'll, pay, I'll send you a paper that actually that came out comparing different um, emulsifiers on gut microbiome disruption so they they did a trial and they basically fed the people in the trial a emulsifier free diet for two weeks and then they switched them to an emulsifier containing diet and they saw for another two weeks and they saw the difference in their microbiome composition comparing those two time periods and there was a significant difference between the two. Really? So if you think of emulsifiers as something that, you know, it kind of makes things creamy, it does that to our gut microbiome because our gut microbes are just, they're cells no. that have, you know, natural <laughs> outer lining. Yeah. So, and there's actually some really interesting research looking at whether emulsifiers in washing up liquid, so whether that's so surfactants, that whether that has a similar effect on our microbiome. So there's lots of research going on at the moment to look at how chemicals that impact things in our external world, how that how do they then interact with our gut microbes? And do they disrupt that very delicate balance that our gut microbiome creates to protect our gut wall lining? So are you saying then that it would be the surfactants used in washing up liquid or, or dishwashers that could leave residues on plates that then gets transferred onto foods that could then disrupt our microbiome? That's exactly what I'm saying. And there's some research being done at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine that's looking at exposure to those. No, I know it sounds crazy. It's looking at exposure to those by looking at people's reported washing up habits. So if you're somebody who washes up in a sink with fairy liquid, for example, but then doesn't necessarily rinse the plates, you know, just but like puts them on a drying rack. That will leave a lot more surfactant on the plate for when you eat them. So they're trying to see, can we explain some of the inflammation that we see associated with dysbiosis and with like disrupted microbial film of the gut and surfactant use? So it's really interesting. And microbiome research just grows and grows in the directions it's going in, but certainly food additives, Mm. artificial additives to our food. I think one of the things that um, Tim Spector always speaks about, who I work with a lot, he says, there's no use replacing one thing in our food with 10 chemicals we don't know about. So it's really being mindful about adding all these things in, which in theory might be okay, but we're not sure. And especially if these things aren't found in nature, so we would never have come across them in our biological evolution, we have to be careful to just add them into our plates and into our systems. And, you know, I think we're seeing that with microplastics and exposure to plastics and as endocrine disrupting chemicals. It's something that we, I guess, didn't think 
about <laughs> uh, just adding more and more plastics to our environment, like what will that, that actually do to us in the long term? Mm -hmm. And this is where research is now moving towards answering some of these questions and seeing where can we make changes. And for women, I think, you know, of course, my interest in women is women's health. So I'll always be biased towards this. But for women, it's really important for us to be aware of these things throughout our life course, because not only are we impacting our own health, but we're impacting future generations health. So I'm so glad that there's people like you that spread the message <laughs> as far uh, and wide as possible, my goodness. especially to women. Well, you know, not only spread the message, I, I, I want your job actually so I'm, I'm going to come back in another life I think as a, <laughs> as a gut health researcher before we go Fedi I just I do want to end on a, on a positive note here I mean obviously a lot of the information here that we've talked about is fascinating and, and hopefully not too scary but that there are there is one simple thing I think that we can all take away from this uh, which will also help reduce inflammation which I'd love you to touch on briefly because inflammation is of course this common symptom of the menopause as you've talked about and that's using extra virgin olive oil. I love it I know Tim Spector's also a great fan but can you just explain give us top line on why it's so beneficial for the microbiome? Liz honestly so Tim's new book is coming out next week and I helped him with it. And we've written a, like a chapter on extra virgin olive oil. <laughs> so you will enjoy that. I love extra virgin olive oil. It is so important to add that to our diet. And I think, you know, it make, apart from the fact that it makes food taste great, it's a great oil to cook with. It's so high in polyphenols that any oxidation that takes place during cooking is balanced out by the polyphenol content. And as we know, polyphenols are these beneficial plant chemicals that do a myriad of things for us, including acting as antioxidants, but they also feed our gut microbes and they also help lots of cellular processes to function while supporting our metabolism. And really extra virgin olive oil is one of those foods that we should all be adding to our diet to, as you said, reduce inflammation. Now, inflammation, I think it's important to say is a normal biological response when it's needed. So if you cut your hand or, you know, you injure yourself in some way, inflammation is what allows our immune system to kick into action and to create the right antibodies to prevent infection. So it's an important part of our immune response. But the issue is when we have chronic low-grade inflammation taking place every day, all day, that's what really causes a disruption to our system and, and is linked to most of the non-communicable long-term diseases that we've spoken about today. And you're right in saying that our diet and our lifestyle can really help drive that low-grade chronic inflammation down. So there's plenty of evidence to show that things like a Mediterranean dietary pattern, including lots of nuts, extra virgin olive oil, vegetables, green leafy veg and fruits and seeds, that really helps to bring that chronic low-grade inflammation down and is associated with much decreased likelihood of um, long-term non-communicable diseases. But also, we, we know that by following these dietary patterns that have plenty of polyphenol-rich foods in them, we also have better mental health and we have better outcomes in terms of clarity and mental clarity. Alzheimer's is reduced. So it's, it's about physical health, but it's also about our improving our mental health in the long term and reducing the impact that stress can have on our body, uh, which I think is a really important topic. And we know that stress contributes to this low grade chronic information that is the driver behind so many of our 
problems, especially after the menopause. Well, it's very nice to end on a positive, I must say, and say that there are lots of good things that we can take away. Fedi, thank you so much. Do come back and chat to us again. I could have continued for hours. It's such a brilliant topic and you're such a great speaker and so knowledgeable. Best of luck with the book for you and Tim and thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Liz. It's been such a pleasure and yeah, I hope to speak to you again soon. There's plenty more to talk about. Well, a huge thanks to Dr. Federica Amati. Wasn't that just fascinating? I have to say, it threw up all kinds of things that I wasn't quite expecting. Who knew that about emulsifiers? Are you going to be rushing to your cupboards in the kitchen, checking labels? I am. My goodness. How many contain emulsifiers? What are they? How many are there? I was also so thrilled to hear the good news about extra virgin olive oil. You know me. That's been just such a lifelong passion, actually. My very first book which I wrote 30 years ago this year, if you're listening to me in 2022, was called Vital Oils. And it was just banging the drum for particularly extra virgin olive oil. And interesting, when I think back to that, that was written at a time when everything was about low fat. It was about low fat, no fat, you know, let's eat low fat yogurt, let's have low fat cottage cheese, not have any fat, fat's the baddie, fat's the foe. And we now know, of course, that high fat foods like extra virgin olive oil are in fact friends, not foes, and that we should be eating more of it. It's certainly, I have to tell you, dear listener, it's the only oil I have in my kitchen. I do have a little bit of coconut oil that's kind of solid at room temperature that's more of a fat but I use that sparingly because although I like it and I like its chemical composition it is of course extremely coconutty which is great if you like coconut but there are some times when it's not perhaps quite so appropriate so I do everything with olive oil I use extra virgin olive oil which is the more expensive kind for things like drizzling over my veggies you know I gave my kids at the weekend actually they had eggs and broccoli for breakfast which they thought was a bit weird but they really enjoyed it and I steamed the broccoli and I just drizzled over some extra virgin olive oil before serving it up to them with the eggs and then I just use a pure olive oil which is cheaper um, but really good for things like general everyday cooking and frying. Well I hope that is helpful I really hope you've enjoyed the conversation do leave me a comment on any of my social media channels love to keep the conversation going and of course if you want a bit more of the nuts and bolts on the menopause particularly you can scroll back just a little way in your podcast feed. We've made a couple of episodes recently for World Menopause Day. That was just a few weeks ago, particularly looking at HRT and of course the safety of it. And there are so many more brilliant articles and resources that are free over on lazarwellbeing.com. And that's also the place to go if you'd like to sign up for the free weekly newsletter. Yep, completely free. It's filled with plenty of tips for living well. It comes to your inbox at around tea time in the UK every Friday. We can send it wherever you are, all over the world. Just check your junk mail because sometimes it does, heaven forfend, end up in the spam folder. Do join us for more conversations on social media. You can find me at Lizelle Me and the team, as well as me, at Lizelle Wellbeing. The Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. 
Hey everyone, it's Jen and Jess from the beauty podcast, Fat Mascara, here to talk about Sol de Janeiro. So many of the beauty experts we interview on our show say that the key to great skin is to treat every inch of your body with the same attention you give your face. One of our favorite ways to do that is with Sol de Janeiro's Beige Flor Elastic Cream, a rich body cream that's clinically proven to boost collagen and has been shown to improve skin crepiness on the chest in just two weeks. Plus, it's scented with Sol de Janeiro's Charosta 68 fragrance. Sol de Janeiro is offering you 10% off your first order on soldejanero.com and free shipping with the code ACAST10. That's S-O L-D-E-J-A-N-E-I-R-O soldejanero.com and use the code ACAST10 for 10% off.